I'm Billy Ray. And I'm Joel. And you're listening to Tales from Wisteria Lane. The podcast where we give a fair view of all things Desperate Housewives. Hi everyone, welcome back to Tales from Wisteria Lane. I'm Billy Ray. And I am Joel. And in today's episode, we're going to be talking about Season 2, Episode 4, My Heart Belongs to Daddy. My heart does belong to Daddy. (laughs) (laughs) Just want to say Happy New Year to everyone who is listening to this, because when this episode is released, it'll be January the 2nd. Yes, uh, Happy New Year, guys. It is officially 2021. We made it. We got past the apocalypse a bunch of times. We did. So if it is edited out, I hope you've had a fantastic 2020. Might not have been ideal but hopefully something happened in that year that makes you appreciate it. We're here, and we have our wine. And we're queer. And we're ready to talk about this episode. So I'm going to be doing the outline. Joel's going to be doing the trivia. Indeed. So should we get started? Would you like to tell me some trivia? Sure. So this episode aired on October 16th, 2005. It was directed by Robert Duncan McNeil, who directed episodes of other pretty well-known TV shows like Smash, which I'm a huge fan of, and One Tree Hill, which I'm also a huge fan of. Suburgatory, he directed an episode of, which B's a huge fan of. I was also a huge fan of it as well to be fair but B doesn't shut up about it and Murder She Wrote when was the last time I even mentioned Suburgator I don't know probably like five minutes ago but um, he also directed Murder She Wrote not all of them but an episode of that and B watches a lot of YouTube videos about Murder She Wrote considering he's probably never seen an episode of it before in his life no I've never (laughs) seen an episode I just I love pushing up roses yeah the YouTuber very good YouTuber she's brilliant Um, and the episode was written by Joey Murphy and John Pardee okay so I misinformed our listeners in a previous episode this episode title of My Heart Belongs to Daddy comes from the Cole Porter musical Leave It To Me so it was not written by Stephen Sondheim so when we said oh are the episodes written by Stephen Sondheim from this point on that's false America (laughs) but it's not the case oh damn (laughs) Uh, the French title translates to George Resists the German translates to The Imaginary Friend Hungarian My Heart Beats for Daddy and stuff like that so quite specific title names that do fit well with the episode that's still quite funny My Heart Beats for Daddy (laughs) yeah still funny so leave it to me I've got a little bit of trivia on that musical because I'd never heard of it then you know that I haven't heard of it yeah so I was interested to read about it It's a 1938 musical with music and lyrics by Cole Porter, and it's set in Stalinist Russia in the 1930s, with Stalin himself, who actually appears at the end. In the Cold War era, after World War II, and its comic treatment of Soviets and Nazis seemed misplaced, and the show was not revived until the late 1980s, and the song was originally performed by a woman called Mary Martin, who played Dolly Winslow, who's the young protege of a rich newspaper publisher, and in the original context, Dolly is stranded at a Siberian railway station, wearing only a fur coat, performs a strip tease while singing the song surrounded by eager Siberian men and she says that since she's met daddy she will flirt with other men but won't follow through as daddy is her sugar daddy. Mary Martin sang it again in the 1940 movie Love Thy Neighbour and in Britain the song was a hit for Pat Kirkwood who performed it in 1938 and this led to her being dubbed Britain's first wartime star and the song has apparently been associated with her ever since and then Marilyn Monroe sang the song and Anna Nicole Smith recorded a copy as well. Okay. I think I know the name Anna Nicole Smith. Anna Nicole Smith was done by Adore Delano in season six of Snatch Game. That's pro- yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so that's the trivia. Oh, interesting. I mean, maybe we'll watch that musical. Who can say? I doubt it. I doubt we'll get around to watching that. No, nah, it doesn't sound great. <laughs> so previously on Desperate Housewives, Lynette struggles to balance her work and family life. Carlos could get sent to prison for eight years. Bree discovers that she's in love with George after a lie detector test and, well... We made a whole debacle about lie detector tests on the previous episode, didn't we? Mm-hmm. And Susan uncovers the truth about Zach's true parentage. Now, 
The episode starts as Gabby goes to visit Carlos in prison, and the more that she visits, the more sick she gets of the prisoners sexually objectifying her as she makes her little walk past the fencing where all the prisons are. One day, when she goes to visit, she's walking with Carlos's lawyer and demands a conjugal visit with Carlos. The lawyer doesn't appreciate Gabby's demanding tone, and this leads to an argument where he insults Gabby by bringing up her affair with her old gardener. Gabby slaps the lawyer, and when he gets up in her face, the prisoners start to defend Gabby, leading to all of them trying to attack the lawyer and the prison officers trying to stop a possibly ensuing riot. Gabby now doesn't mind the attention from the prisoners so much, and we cut to the title sequence. I think we can all agree that the prisoners were catcalling Gabby. Yep. Like, it was absolute catcalling. You can't really describe it. It's anything else. And so it really kind of bothers me that Mary Alice referred to it as complimenting Gabby because catcalling is not compliments. No, I think it was a bit, a bit of tongue-in-cheek there. I was just a little bit like, mm, Mary Alice, that's really not a compliment. Call it how a T.I. is. It's catcalling. But Gabby looks incredible. She does. Like, absolutely amazing. The outfit, the hat. She kind of looks like a Latina great Gatsby. Like, she's gone back into the 20s and she's this rich Latina woman that just owns an <laughs> empire of some kind. I don't even remember the outfit. <laughs> it was incredible. It was so good. It was, like, red and white with flowers on it and then she had the hat and she's, like, walking down. Of course the prisoners were catcalling her. <laughs> she looked fantastic. Well, she certainly appreciated the prisoners when they started jabbing the lawyer through the fencing. <laughs> she did, because... There is no excuse for disrespecting a woman. And so to those prisoners who are probably in there for various different infractions, manslaughter, murder, drugs, whatever, there is a line that you do not cross. And for these, like, criminals, that line is you do not disrespect a beautiful woman. Also, any chance they get to just start jabbing some disrespectful lawyer. Oh, hell yeah. Because he was so unprofessional. Like, and the lawyer shouldn't be slagging Gabby off to the other inmates anyway. He's turning to the other inmates and he's like, this is her fault. She went so damn horny. Don't be t- slagging off your client's wife to the other inmates. How dare you? Yeah, unprofessional. Totally unprofessional. He had what was coming to him. After the title sequence, Mary Alice discusses how working dads can return to Wisteria Lane after a day's work and not feel guilty about leaving the family all day, unlike working mums. And ain't that the truth? Oh, that is totally the truth. I think we've mentioned that in a previous episode. We then see Lynette come home to sleeping children and she talks to Tom about how upset she is that she's basically missing their lives. So, she goes to eat some cold dinner on the table, but Tom tells her that the food is actually left out for Mrs. Mulberry. Parker's imaginary friend, and that hers is in the oven. As he gets her portion out of the oven, he tells Lynette that Parker started seeing his imaginary friend, a British nanny, about a week ago, and that he carries an umbrella around with him. Lynette sees this as some sort of coping mechanism for Parker now that she's back at work, which Tom is completely blind about, and then questions why the imaginary nanny gets a bigger portion of food than she does. (laughs) I mean, that nanny did get a bigger portion. Oh, yeah. Talk about food wastage, America. Uh, That that food's just going to go straight to the bin. Yeah, here's the thing, Tom. If she's an imaginary friend, you can give her an imaginary portion, right? You literally can give her imaginary food. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, it's invisible because she's invisible. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Lynette, before she even talks to Tom, she goes to the bed and, like, hugs her kids, does, like, the motherly thing, and she's really upset that she didn't get home in time to see her children and they're all asleep, so she goes and, like, gives them a hug. Parker is sleeping with an umbrella, and she doesn't even question that. True, but that's probably because you're not a parent. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. They probably see such random shit every day. Yeah, that's probably true, to be fair. And... Tom brushes it off and he's like, it's fine, Lynette. Kids have imaginary friends. Kids do have imaginary friends. But how many kids do you know that have imaginary friends that are grown-ass people? Like, I've got this imaginary friend. He's a 55-year-old businessman. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, I guess he'd obviously just very, very recently seen Mary Poppins or maybe even the original Nanny McPhee. I knew you were going to do that. I knew it. I absolutely <laughs> fucking knew it. Nanny McPhee is trash, guys. I love to wind up Joel by saying that Nanny McPhee was the original and Mary Poppins copied it. No, Mary Poppins did not copy it. The, the new Mary Poppins copied it because that new Mary Poppins was also trash. <laughs> oh dear. But the original Mary Poppins, no, no ma'am. So, Susan and Mike are kissing goodbye after a date, and Susan questions why she, why he won't come inside and bone her, basically. Ooh. He says the casual thing isn't working for him, but Susan is really big on the idea and can't seem to let it go. Mike then says that he knows Susan has a problem with Zach, but that he is part of the package now, like it or not. So, Susan says that she will accept that Zach is part of the package now, and the scene ends with Mike saying that they don't have to be casual anymore, and Susan saying that she can be naked and ready for him in 20 seconds, including travel time, which is really impressive. That's very impressive. Maybe she, like, starts taking her clothes off as she's crossing the street. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she was just wearing, like, Velcro clothes. Maybe. Although Susan can apparently take her clothes off and be naked in 20 seconds, including travel time, I still think Edie could do it quicker. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Even with the cast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This scene creeps me out because Mike <laughs> kisses her and then, like, pulls away and leaves it at that. And Susan's like, wait, that's it? You bought me ribs, I get to congratulate you. And he was just like, oh, you want to take it slow? And she's like, but it doesn't mean you have to act like brother and sister. And that just makes me feel really sick. Yeah, what is it, Star Wars? <laughs> it's like, brother and sister, love, he just kissed you. What were you doing with your brother? <laughs> yeah, and it's about time that the whole Zack thing got mentioned. Yeah. Because it's been a bit awkward the past few episodes. They, they've just been kind of walking on eggshells around the situation, but the mm. truth of the matter is that, that you can't really go on like this. No, you can't go on like this. It's, it's not a long-term solution. Americans really go out with their leftovers, don't they? They really go, like, full out. Yeah, they origami their leftovers. Yeah, she, like, proper hat. Also, why would you put ribs? Like, why would you take ribs and then wrap it in turkey-shaped tinfoil? That's just a mind <laughs> in itself. And people say that art degrees aren't worth a thing. And... <laughs> <laughs> So, in this next scene, Gabby is visiting Carlos in prison, and Carlos isn't very happy that they lost, I imagine, another lawyer? I don't know if they brought up multiple lawyers. But I don't remember. Nor can I. But they've lost a lawyer because Gabby nearly started a riot, and then she wants a conjugal visit to try and start fixing their very tumultuous relationship, shall we say. Good word. Um, saying that all they do is bicker, and then Carlos remarks that that's all they ever did, and Gabby basically says, yeah... But then we had something to look forward to afterwards. Yeah, and then we'd have this amazing sex. And now there's nothing. There isn't even a payoff. Yeah. So they would always have post-argument make-up sex. Mm -hmm. Or anger sex or something. And so Carlos basically says, all right then, get the damn lawyer. Tell yeah. to go get another lawyer for this. Amazing. I've got clip for the episode. We didn't get it in the end. We didn't go for that clip. But when she's like, don't judge me. You're not in here because you got caught helping the poor. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Classic but Gabby. It wasn't Gabby that caused the riot. It was the lawyer. Yeah, I love that Carlos just instantly thinks Gabby totally started this riot. Yeah, <laughs> and then he's so easy to win over. Yeah, the minute that she's like, well, no, I just, I want us to have sex. He's all like, oh, okay. Yeah, he's like, okay, get the lawyer. <laughs> so that's cute. <laughs> yeah. So we cut to our first scene with Brie for the episode with George, which I love. <laughs> yeah. Um. So Brie and George have basically just come home from a date or something. Well, yeah, we can assume it was some form of a date. Yeah. Brie kisses George on the forehead after the day and... 
George basically wants to actually kiss a bit further, going mm. going a bit further, but Bree's hesitant as Rex has only been dead for like four weeks. As she should be. Exactly. She starts to ask George if he wants to come over for a home-cooked meal tomorrow, and Andrew walks out of the house taking out the trash. Trash. And he interrupts their conversation, asking if George is going to leave yet. <laughs> he, he starts getting really up in his face. And it ends up with the two shoving each other until Bree has to break them up. And then she tells George that she will be serving fish. Like, I love... Girl's already got the menu planned out in her head the minute she asks George to come over for dinner on Friday. And she was like, oh, come over for a home-cooked meal on Friday. We haven't eaten at home for a while. And the minute she said that, she's like, like trying to go through a little, like, file of facts in her head, trying to find the right, like, menu. Oh, what can I make? What can I make? What's a file of facts? A file of facts is those little roll- rolling things, isn't it? Oh, those things from, like, the Rolodex. 80s and 90s movies. I think they're called Rolodexes. Wait, yeah, th- those things in the films. Yes, yeah, yeah. Before Love you had, like, people. I don't know, a contact book on your phone. <laughs> yeah, before that. File of facts. Let's Google and see what that is. Okay, file of facts is like a planner, so scrap that. It certainly was not a file of facts. Probably a Rolodex that you said, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I reckon that Brie actually already had this idea in her head before this day even began. Because it's kind of like myself, when I think about dating someone, I'm already trying to think ahead a little bit. Almost like it's a game of chess and I'm thinking of my next move. I feel like that's probably what Brie was doing. Maybe, yeah. I bet she had this idea of, I'll invite him over for a home-cooked meal after the first date. But, you know, try and make it sound casual and like yeah. she just thought of it. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I if I was George, I'd be a little bit upset with the way this date ended. The forehead kiss. You get the forehead kiss. Brie, like, I know you're a lady, but the forehead kiss is what you give to your children when you're tucking them in at night. If you're not ready to kiss him, don't kiss him. End the, end the night with a hug and say, oh, it's been a really nice date. But don't give him a forehead kiss. Yeah, to be honest, it kind of makes you wonder why she's even doing it. Yeah. It's almost like she's leading him on a bit. I don't necessarily think she's leading him on. I think that she's convinced that she feels a specific way that she doesn't even know that she necessarily feels yet because the only reason she realised this previously is because of that lie detector test. And that lie detector test didn't really show her anything that shocked her, but she's not even sure that she feels this way, so... I don't judge Brie because I know that she's coming from a place of vulnerability. And I know that she thinks that she loves that she loves George now, but you know you're not ready because mm. of Rex's very recent death. So where's this really going to lead? And also, I mean, you can't just jump from loving one person to another. I mean, I'm sure people have very different viewpoints on, on love. There are very, uh, people have very different mentalities about relationships. There are different, you know, different types of relationships that are suitable for different types of people. But fundamentally, you can't just jump from losing the love of your life to falling in love again in four weeks. Exactly. She clearly has a bond with George. They get along. You know, she said this to Rex before he passed away. You know, they're good friends. She she gets to do things with George. She doesn't get to do with anybody else. And for that, that means a lot for Brie. But that does not mean love. Yeah, exactly. So I don't I don't blame Andrew for his behaviour here. And if I was in this situation and my mum started dating somebody else after 28 years, I would probably <laughs> react this very same way. Yeah, I get it. Because I would think this man is taking advantage. Yeah. So I'm actually on Andrew's side here. I, I get it. <laughs> also, George, it does not matter how much of an arse Andrew was being. You don't shove a child. Andrew's like, what, 15? He's 15, 16? Yeah. You don't shove a child. Doesn't matter how much of an arse he was being, he might have got physical with you first, which he did. You don't get physical back as a grown man. Yeah, like, just let them let his mum sort that out. Yeah. Brie, those were warning signs. Those were warning flags. They were waving. Yeah, and you just really didn't do anything. That was a warning flag party right yeah. there. <laughs> Alright, so, in the next scene, Lynette wakes up Parker before she has to go to work so that they can spend a bit of time together after, well, you know, Mrs. Mulberry Gate. Mm-hmm. Friend Gate. Brella Gate. Brella Gate. Brolly Gate. After, after Brolly Gate. Brolly Gate. Um... <laughs> So that so they get in the car so they can go get some donuts. 
They're about to drive off, but Parker panics as they forgot Mrs. Mulberry's umbrella and her hat. She runs into the house but can't find it, and so she comes out with this sun hat instead, and she's all like, she can just wear that instead. But Parker isn't having any of it. Parker says that Mrs. Mulberry left her umbrella in the shower, and when he asks if Lynette's going to go get it, she shouts, No, I'm not going to go get it! Then she apologises for shouting, but the damage is done. So Parker gets out of the car, telling Lynette that him and Mrs. Mulberry don't want donuts anymore. The sass. Parker is so sassy. He even opens the other passenger door for Mrs. Mulberry to get out of the car. <laughs> yeah, he's he's going really into the whole imaginary friend thing. Yeah, like the direction for this whole imaginary friend, like the choreography behind it, genius. Absolute genius. <laughs> this is why I love Parker. He's such a cool little kid in this show. He's so great. He's such a good little actor. He... Portrays the perfect little mother's boy kid. Yeah. But I will point out, someone needs to remind Let Let someone needs to remind Lynette that she does have three other children. So I know Parker's going through a bit of a crisis, but let's not forget that you also haven't really seen your three other children. Exactly. Parker may be the emotional one, but if you stop favouritising Parker and taking him to get donuts without your boys and your little girl, they're going to get some problems themselves. Uh-huh. Like, why does Mrs. Mulberry even need her umbrella? Why wasn't Lynette asking this question? Why does she need it? It's a beautiful day outside. That's how she flies. Oh, God. It's Mary Poppins. But she don't need to fly if Lynette's driving them to get donuts. Yeah. Uh, but it, it could also be her stuff, like on Nanny McPhee. Yeah. I had to bring it up again. We cut to Bree and Andrew. Andrew is basically about to walk out the door to go see his friends, but Bree doesn't like Andrew's top, so she stops him and makes him put on a shirt instead. He starts to talk about how he isn't going to have dinner with the pharmacist. Bree says that he should get to know him, but Andrew doesn't want to get to know him, and he implies that Bree is embarrassing the family by dating the town nerd after his father's death, and that he won't be joining them for dinner as he has plans. But Bree then blackmails him into joining them for dinner by threatening not to pay the entrance fee for his swimming club. Us gays and our reading, like, Andrew literally wrecked his mother and George in 20 seconds flat. Just wait until people find out you're dating the town nerd less than a month after dad died. Brilliant. Us gays, the library's open, Andrew. <laughs> There's also just the underhanded subtlety of calling him the pharmacist. Mm -hmm. That's what his dad used to do. Yeah. Oh my god, it was! <gasps> yeah, oh, he's totally picking up on that. He's like, oh yes, I love to read. <laughs> I mean, forgive, forgive the desperate housewives pun, but the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> That's a good one. It does not. So, yeah, great. But what is Brie gives off proper boomer energy in this scene. What is it with boomers and their attitude towards teenagers and their clothing? Oh. You're not wearing an outfit like that to go out and meet your friends. Relax, Brie, relax. Yeah, he's going to meet his friends. He's not going to church. Right, he's not going to like a wedding or a job interview. Take a chill peel. It wasn't even that bad a top. It was just a regular top. It was a t-shirt with a couple of like rips on the shoulder, but they weren't like the rips that you get on like the jeans with the ripped knees. They were just like, a couple of little like tears, like slices in the shirt. Oh, Brie. And then she makes him put on this hideous striped shirt. He's going to meet his friends, okay? He doesn't need to wear a button-up shirt to that. That's how you get bullied. Proper making him look like a Mormon. Right! Mm. Oh, not cool, Brie. So, Susan is putting up missing posters for Zach when Edie interrupts her, calling out, Maya! <laughs> Brilliant. While hobbling over to her because her <laughs> leg is in this big pink cast. That boot! That Edie boot! It's so good! Yeah, no one else could pull off a big pink cast the way that Edie does. No. <laughs> she asks Susan about the missing posters 
So Edie says that she wants Zack in jail, but says that she knows that Mike won't do that to his own son. It turns out that she knows about Zack's parentage through Julie, and that she's actually already sent out a bunch of emails about it. Shady Edie, shady. Edie starts to tease Susan, asking what will happen when he gets out of prison, and Susan says that they probably won't find Zack anyway. Edie then sees this as a conniving attempt on Susan's part to come across as a good girlfriend, putting Mike's feelings before her own, and wonders why they aren't closer. And I've got, I've got a clip. We do have a clip, it's a very good clip. Yeah, let's play the clip. Yeah. Oh, I see. And then you'll still come off as little Miss Perfect self-sacrificing girlfriend, putting his needs ahead of yours. Oh, why you conniving little shrew. I don't know why we're not closer. Brilliant. I'd call Edie sass, but it was less sassy and more... Calling it how it is. Just funny. Yeah, it's just (laughs) literally, she's calling Susan out. Call her out, Edie. (laughs) She loves this. Also, I want to take a brief... I want to take a very brief moment and compliment Edie on her super cute outfit, which was giving (laughs) me, like, she had, like, this this pink, like, this little pink dress, like, strappy dress on, giving me, like, young Jessica Simpson. Just, if she lost the boot... Oh, yeah. She'd be giving me young Jessica Simpson or something. I loved it. The boot's a look. Yeah. (laughs) The boot was a look in itself. It's clearly a Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) I don't get Susan's poster distribution, though. Did you pay attention to that? I didn't. She was put on a tree, wasn't she, or something? Well, she put two on the same tree. I guess you can see it from both sides. Like, on both sides. And I just (laughs) don't get it. Like, I guess when you explain it like that, yeah, you can see it from both sides. But I just felt like there was a plan there. Like, is it so that she can get rid of the posters quicker? You know, is it Susan's trying to distribute the posters in a smaller radius so people are less likely to see them in Fairview because she's not that interested in finding Zach? Or is it just because Susan's a blatant idiot? Wow, that's a lot of theories. You're really leaning into this. I am. Because why would they make Susan... Like, Edie's got a point. Like, Susan's doing this just to please Mike. She doesn't really want to find Zach. And Susan's whole, we're not really going to find Zach. It's like finding a needle in a haystack spiel that she spouted in that scene to Edie before the clip proves it. Yeah, well, it's not entirely unfounded, that theory, so... Call me a conspiracy theorist, flat earth and all that, but... (laughs) Conspiracy theorist? I don't really believe the earth is flat, don't worry. But any scene that Edie in really makes it for me. Mm-hmm. But I'm a bit biased. <laughs> the, um, there's an account on Instagram called Wisteria Women, and they actually made a post of uh, scenes that sum up Edie Britt. This wasn't actually on it, but I thought it was quite funny. <laughs> they even, they've got the one where Susan was like, you're wasting your time and your donuts. And she's like, not no. if you choke on them. Brilliant. Not if you choke on them. But funny post, funny account. Yeah, it's called Wisteria Women. Go give them a follow, guys. I'll, I'll probably like put a link in the episode or something, but I think you, got, you should follow them. They do lots of... Um... You can share it on our story. Yeah, they do lots of... Them. Desperate Housewives posts. Yeah. And I really lean into the ED ones. Mm. So, Mary Alice introduces us to a lawyer named David Bradley, because you couldn't get any more of a common name, really. Right? Like, total white man name right there. Yeah. I'm um, David, David Bradley. Both of my first name and my surname are both first names. Yeah, couldn't get any more white than that. <laughs> yeah. He is always successful in his cases, and we're shown a montage of him seducing his female clients. He refuses to take Gabby's case, though, because he doesn't feel the fire for her case and sees Carlos as a clearly guilty gay basher. Well, you kind of are. Yeah. The conversation turns to conjugal visits, and David advises Gabby to walk away, as relationships and marriages always end up failing when one of them is behind bars. I mean, I haven't really looked into the statistics of that, so I don't know how true that is. But I can imagine that it's probably not an uncommon conception. Yeah, I reckon it's not a stretch. No, because it is difficult. 
any long distance relationship is difficult and like the lawyer says when you add metal bars and all of that sort of stuff of course it's gonna be difficult but basically why is Gabby fighting so hard for this lawyer when he's clearly a sex pest bit of a sleazebag like total sleazebag he just sleeps with all of his clients plus the lawyer's a bit cynical also she doesn't know he's a sex pest no that's true we we as the audience know because of Mary Alice but Gabby doesn't know that yet David is yeah he's a bit of a sleazebag yeah I mean he's not unattractive no he's not unattractive he's certainly not unattractive but yeah there's a level of professionalism that lawyers have to maintain this is why it upsets um, Elle Woods and Legally Blonde. Yeah. Like, this is why she goes back to wherever she's from. Because she's heartbroken that the lawyers tried to make a move on her. <laughs> so, yeah, let's not go all Legally Blonde on us now, Desperates. I think we know where this is going to go with Gabby and David, but we'll, mm-hmm. get, we'll get there. <laughs> we then go over to, I think, the school board. <laughs> Lynette meets with members of the school board who are concerned about Parker's imaginary friend, Mrs. Mulberry. Parker is getting more lively with his imaginary friend, and when the art teacher refused to give Mrs. Mulberry a whole desk to herself, he jabbed her with an umbrella. <laughs> that teacher was so done. She was like, it was. Yeah, he, she, <laughs> she wasn't happy. They tell Lynette that sometimes these imaginary friends come as a coping mechanism to deal with loss or unhappiness, and they ask Lynette if she knows where this could have come from, but it just ends with Lynette breaking down in tears in front of them. They really lean on to making Lynette feel very guilty in this scene. Like, oh, has he suffered a loss or, you know, like really trying to make it seem like this is because of Lynette leaving. <laughs> oh, they they totally knew that it was because Lynette's back at work. But this scene is my absolute favourite. <laughs> this is my favourite scene of the episode because Felicity Huffman is such a good actress in this. The way she breaks down where she's just like... <laughs> <laughs> You just, yeah, but you love a good crying scene. I love a good crying scene. It makes me so happy. <laughs> I, I sort of laugh out of uncomfortableness because it makes me so uncomfortable. <laughs> the way she just flips 180 between trying to hold the tears in and then just breaking down. Why was he even allowed the umbrella in class? You've got like coat hangers and like cubbies and whatever they call them in America for that. I don't know. Times were different back then. I mean, when I was in school, you weren't allowed to carry around loads of stuff because it could be used as a weapon. Yeah, I wasn't allowed to carry around loads of stuff at school. I just had to hang it up on my little coat. Like, we all got our own little coat hook with our little name on it. We got to hang stuff up on it. And then I got one of those desks that you lift the top up and you can get the stuff out from the middle. I never had one of those. Proper American. But yeah, brolly gate number two happened. Mm-hmm. We then cut to the dinner scene. <laughs> We love a dinner scene. They're always so scandalous. We do. And Bree's family dinners are just so strange. Yeah. So she's invited George over for dinner. During Bree's family dinner, Andrew is pretending to get along with George until Bree and Danielle are in the kitchen. I mean, to start with, Bree is just so happy that they're getting along. And Danielle doesn't get it because George isn't funny. And Andrew's laughing, but he's just not funny. That's why it's freaky. George's jokes aren't funny. Yeah. (laughs) I think it's because George does have proper kind of boomer humour. Oh, yeah. And Andrew's over-exaggerated laughter is just cringe. The fact that Brie can't see through this. Right. But it's fine. She she just wants everyone to get along. Mm -hmm. So, Brie and Danielle are in the kitchen. Andrew is at the dinner table with George, and he starts to tease George, asking if he has ever ever actually been with a woman. (laughs) He says that his parents had a great sex life and wants to make sure that his mum is with a man that can satisfy her. He then continues to, well, make George uncomfortable, but goes on to disgust and horrify George by making the sex noises that he's heard Brie make through his wall. Brie then walks back into the dining room with some sort of dessert, but George doesn't want any. Brie then tells him that he has to try some as it's absolutely scrumptious. She then takes a bite of the dessert and she enjoys the food so much that she makes the same noise that Andrew made when he was in (laughs) Tim... (laughs) <laughs> imitating her sex noise. Oof. 
Sorry, this one's hard to read. <laughs> Andrew points to Bree, Malvin about the noise, and then George gets really angry and tells Andrew to go to his room. This comes as a complete surprise to everyone at the table, ending with Bree telling George that she won't allow him to discipline her child. Mm-hmm. Well, without telling her why. Yeah, without, like, grounds for common knowledge. Like, she asked George why, and George was like, oh, I can't tell you, it's too scandalous, or whatever word he used. And then George leaves. Yeah. <laughs> I've, we've got a clip. Oh, we do, we do. Yeah, let's play the clip. Please shut up. You should have heard my mom, too. She had this, this weird moan. It was kind of like, um... Mm. Isn't that bizarre? That's the sound my mom makes when she climaxes. Okay, time for Cobbler. <laughs> Brilliant, absolutely fantastic. Like, stuns George into silence, like disturbs him so much that he literally cannot say anything. And whatever Andrew's overall plan is, I'm here for it. I'm so, I'm, I'm torn because part of me is like, ew, Andrew. <laughs> So gross. But then another part of me is like, Andrew, that's brilliant. <laughs> Absolutely hilarious. So well done. Brilliant imitation of her. And George, you can't just demand that someone else's child go to their room. <laughs> that's not the way it works. You can't parent someone else's child. Well, he tried the, the to be physical and that didn't work either. So yeah. George is having no wins. No wins at all. And then the fact that Bree doesn't seem to question what's going on in this scene when Andrew is clearly hiding something because he turns to George and he's like, oh, well, Mr. Williams, did I, did I say something wrong? Come on, Andrew. <laughs> Come on, Bree. <laughs> like, how do we not notice this? Like, Bree, do you not know your son at all? Fantastic. So Andrew has the upper hand at the moment. Mm -hmm. Over to Joel's favourite. Gabby plays a voicemail from David, the lawyer, in which he says that he's totally convinced that Gabby and Carlos's marriage is an absolute train wreck and recommends a divorce lawyer. A very offended Gabby, and rightly so, then marches into David's office to scold him for his assumptions and he offers her a drink. He then pours himself a drink and he basically starts saying to Gabby that she's pampered and spoiled and that having sex in prison once in a while with, with her husband isn't really going to satisfy her and then he begins hitting on her until she tells him that she's pregnant. <laughs> mm -hmm. David then agrees to help out Gabby with Carlos's case and she demands that they have a conjugal visit by noon tomorrow. She is demanding. We love a bossy queen. Powerful. Like power play moment right there. It's just gross. Like the lawyer, as we said before, isn't unattractive but how many other women has he used those same lines on leaning against that desk. More worryingly, how many has it worked on? Right. Because from what we've seen, it's a lot. It is a lot, apparently. So, yeah, not cool. Well, he's feeding off the desperation, which is really gross. But yeah, how dare he assume that she does want to divorce Carlos? Like, who does he think he is? The absolute audacity of it. The absolute shift in his entire demeanour the minute she says that she's pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, why? What's wrong with pregnant women? Are they not attractive? So amazing. So good. Oh, this next bit's a bit long. Let me get through the first part, and we'll discuss. Okay. Susan and Mike are carrying Zach's missing posters together and holding hands. Susan tells Mike that she's just happy that they're spending time together, and Mike thanks her for all of her help before saying that they should split up to cover more ground. It doesn't take long for Susan to give up, and she buys a couple of ice creams for her and Mike. This is when the ice cream man notices that the boy on the missing posters is on a bench directly behind Susan. She runs up to him with her ice creams, <laughs> but he runs away, so she chases him with the ice creams. She nearly catches up to him until he threatens to hit her with a wooden board, and she runs back to Mike. Mike looks confused, and she has to explain that she went to get them ice cream, but she got hungry, because she's absolutely just covered in the ice cream, completely leaving out the whole Zack part of the story. Mm. Shall we discuss before I do the next bit? Sure, yeah. I think it is incredibly disrespectful of Susan for the way she's behaving. But not out of character. <laughs> oh, okay. I just think 
She's not taking this seriously. She hands all of those posters, again, because she can't be bothered to distribute them herself, to the ice cream man and is like, can you just start handing those out to everybody that you sell an ice cream to? Because she can't be bothered to walk around and start asking the question because she doesn't really want to find Zach. Exactly. She gives up super quickly. So easily. I love the fact that she turns to Mike and says, I'm just happy to be spending the day with you. And then literally no less than a minute later, Mike turns to her and says, I think we should cover more ground and split up. Brilliant. Yeah. Well I, said, Mike. <laughs> you could tell that she didn't enjoy that like, no. facial expression. But I also don't blame Susan for running away when Zach came at her with that like plank of wood. Yeah, he looked a bit like James from Silent Hill too. Yeah, yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> Plus, this is the man that held her at gunpoint, or the kid that held her at gunpoint. So naturally, she is going to be a little bit fearful of her. I don't disregard her feelings about Zach in that sense, but just don't offer to do something if you're not actually going to do it. Edie had a point. Mm-hmm. Edie had a very valid point. She's just trying to come across as, oh, I'm putting Mike's feelings first. But yeah. she ain't really about that life. No. So, later on, Susan is telling the story of what happened to Gabby and Bree. They are both shocked about the revelation, but have different opinions towards it. Gabby thinks that Zach is a freak, and that Susan is doing the right thing. But Bree says that Zach is Mary Alice's son, and that he would be safer with them than on the streets. First thing I'm going to say about this scene... Gabby, I hope that's apple juice you're drinking in that wine glass because you're pregnant. Uh-oh, called out. That's all I'm going to say because it certainly looks like white wine, Gabby. Anyway, Brie does have a point in a sense that, you know, Zach grew up with them. He's their best friend's child, like blah, blah, blah. But maybe he could find Fagan and like join a gang. Yeah. Like pick a pocket or two or that jazz. It's, it's exactly as Brie says. I mean, he would be safer with them than on the streets. And at the end of the day, he is a human being. Yeah, yeah, he is. At what point... Are you just going to give up on someone that you've known and has been on your street your whole life? You know? To be fair, Zach didn't look that messed up considering he'd been on the streets for X amount of you know, weeks. But he didn't look that messed up for someone that's been living on the street, to be fair. No, he looked all right. I wonder yeah, what he's he been up to. He just looked a little bit, like, tired. Yeah. But at the moment, that's how I'm looking. <laughs> and I'm working a full-time 9 to 5. <laughs> 2020 vibes. So, Lynette and Tom are discussing Parker's imaginary friend and how they can go forward with it. Tom thinks they should all hug more as... <laughs> So funny. Tom thinks they should all hug more, as he read that it would be helpful in a magazine and gives Lynette a hug, which clearly does actually relieve some stress for her. Lynette then goes upstairs to tuck Parker into bed, who is being read a story by Mrs. Mulberry under her umbrella, and she tells him that things have been hard, but she still loves him. But Parker insists that Mrs. Mulberry thinks that Lynette is a liar, and he goes back to reading, pulling the duvet over his head to get away from Lynette. Lynette, Mrs. Mulberry disrespected you, and now you have to kill her. Lynette looked quite offended by it, but I think she handled it well. She did handle it well, but has also, has nobody ever told Parker that it's bad luck to open an umbrella indoors? <laughs> if she's going to read to you, does she really need the umbrella open? But although it is a mess, Tom and Lynette's marriage does have some beautiful moments. Oh, yeah. Like, this was a really beautiful scene between the two of them, of, you know, Tom really trying to console Lynette and calm her down about this whole situation. I did laugh at first, because I, I was <laughs> oh, Tom, really? Hugging? Hugging's um, going to solve all your problems? Yeah, but Tom, we, we know Tom doesn't really believe that hugging's going to solve the problem. But then, obviously, the hug actually worked, and I thought it was quite sweet. Yeah, like, <laughs> Tom's just trying to sort of calm Lynette down with the situation at the moment, isn't he? I do feel bad for Lynette, though, because Parker did disrespect her. Parker did disrespect her. Well, Parker didn't disrespect her. Mrs. Mulberry disrespected her. And so now for that, Mrs. Mulberry has to die. But Mrs. Mulberry is just a reflection of what he's actually feeling. Yeah. So for that, Parker has to die. Oh dear. He disrespected me. Like he can't... Now I'm going to have to kill him. Exactly. He can't go around calling people a liar. That's so rude. I thought it was quite nice. I thought there was going to be a bit of resolution there, but it wouldn't be the Desperate Housewives way. No, not to give us resolution so quickly. No. <laughs> so... 
Brie and George are basically breaking up because Brie believes that everything is her fault, including Andrew's behaviour, and that she has to spend time with Andrew and adapt to his needs. George pretends to agree with Brie, although seems adamant to send him to a counselling club like before, but Brie won't send him away unless he really gets out of control. I love how you called it a counselling club. Well, that's what he said. Makes it like an after-school club. That's because that's what George said. I was just wrong with you. Oh, did you? Yeah. Did he even? George says that in spite of everything, he actually really likes Andrew, as Andrew reminds him of himself. And if that's not a worrying concept, I I don't know what is. They're not too dissimilar. They are both psychopaths. Whereas Andrew's young enough to take a different path at this point. Mm -hmm. But Andrew could become George. Terrifying, but true. We then cut to... um, a much happier scene. Gabby and Carlos are having their conjugal visit, and then after the sex, Gabby asks if their marriage is going to work. Worried about herself and the baby and Carlos getting a job after prison, but he insists that nothing will get in the way. He asks about the new lawyer and if she likes him, but before Gabby can answer, they are interrupted by a phone call from, I think, um, one of the guards, Mm. making sure that Carlos is still there. Afterwards, he forgets about the lawyer and then they decide to spend the last 15 minutes of the visit going at it again. Yeah. Because in all fairness, well, you're not going to be able to again for a while, right? No, well, I don't know how often they allow conjugal visits, really, so I don't know. But, like, hey, Carlos. Hey. (laughs) You look great. Carlos always looks great. He does always look great. It's fair. a shame that he he didn't he wasn't wearing his orange jumpsuit. Ew, no, that was the best part about it. There was no <laughs> orange jumpsuit this time. But I don't I don't get what Gabby's silence was about. It feels like they're really pushing a storyline. It feels like they want us to think that she really likes the lawyer. Yeah, because when Carlos is like, oh, tell me about the lawyer, what's he like? And then there's just that awkward sort of silent moment from Gabby, and I'm just like, but. It doesn't feel like Gabby is interested in a lawyer. Exactly. It could just be that she doesn't want to say he hit on me because she knows that it would ruin the moment, but it does feel like they're pushing a story. Also, how would Carlos react if Gabby turns and says, oh, he hit on me? Not well. Because, let's face it, she's got a history, so his mind would probably go straight to that again. And if he gets angry and tells her to lose the lawyer, they're probably going to lose these visits. Yeah. So, yeah, that's true. Earlier on, Susan said that she could be completely naked within 20 seconds, including travel time, but Carlos beat her. Carlos holds that title for quickest nakedness. Yep, he beat her. He beat her at the gate. Susan goes back to the park where she saw Zach and finds him on a bench. She asks him not to run, but he can't as he hurt his foot, having landed on it funny when running from Susan the first time. She buys him a meal in a diner or a restaurant or something and tells him that Paul isn't dead. Zach assumes that he's in Utah and wants money so that he can go to him. Susan then tells him that he should come home with her and Mike, but Zach is worried that he's really affected Julie after everything that happened, but he also thinks that he might still have a chance with her. This was Susan's moment to tell Zach that Mike is his father, mm-hmm. or at least, you know, try and get him to come home so that Mike could tell him. But instead, the thought of him getting back with Julie clearly disturbs Susan, and she tells him that she wants to help him get to Utah to see his dad. Well, Paul, but he mm. thinks it's his dad. Yeah. <laughs> Saying that family is important or something, and mm-hmm. then she she offers him money to pay for the bus ticket. This is real shady. Mm-hmm. I mean, I get why she's doing it. She's, she's a mother, she's protecting her daughter, but if you hadn't have just said to Mike at the beginning of the episode, I'll help you find Zach, I feel I really, you two deserve to be together and I really want to be a part of that, you wouldn't be in this situation right now. And let's face it, Mike's going to find out. 100%. It's Desperate Housewives. They never keep on to storylines like this for too long a period of time. Mike is going to find out and what's going to happen when it does. This was shady. It was real <laughs> shady. Although I do understand why she's done it. I get where Susan's coming from, but oh, oh damn. I get where Susan's coming from, but I also have no sympathy for her because she put herself in that situation. This is a villainous moment. It's a, it is a real villain. It's an ED moment. She's aiding in Zach leaving and getting away from Mike. Yeah. So bad. 
But she's also protecting her daughter, so... Yeah, there is that. But we'll have to see how it plays out, guys. Yeah. So, back to Brellagate. Mm-hmm. Lynette sneaks into Parker's room to grab Mrs. Mulberry's umbrella and shoves it in the trash can. The next morning, the trash is taken, but the umbrella springs open and falls out of the truck, staying on Wisteria Lane. Oh my god, can't get rid of me that easily. That was that was hilarious. Bet <laughs> you thought you seen the last of me. <laughs> Parker runs downstairs to try and see if he can find the umbrella, and Lynette says that maybe Mrs. Mulberry left to go help another family. Maybe a, a small orphan boy in England who has no hands. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, she got oddly specific about that. Very specific about that. She was really <laughs> laying on thick. So, Parker runs upstairs to get dressed, and Tom asks what Lynette did to Mrs. Mulberry. She says that until there's a body, there's no crime. It's great Taylor Swift song right there. Yeah. When they go outside, Parker sees the umbrella, and he's excited to find that Mrs. Mulberry is still here. Until a truck drives past and runs over the umbrella, completely destroying it. <laughs> Parker cries on Lynette because Mrs. Mulberry is dead. Tom suggests that maybe they should call 911, but Lynette insists that it's too late. Mrs. Mulberry's gone. <laughs> This was a really funny flip-flop moment. It was like... It was fantastic. The net's gotten rid of the problem. Mrs. Mulberry's gone. Oh, no, she's fine. There's the brolly. Bam, run over. Gone Dead. again. And Parker's acting in that little moment where he sort of has that realisation of, you know, his nanny being killed by a garbage truck. <laughs> it's fantastic. And just how traumatised do you have to be to witness that? Like your best friend getting killed. I'll be honest, I can't, when I was watching it, I thought, where's your imagination? Why did you not just think, oh, she must have flown over the truck? Why did you go straight to, damn, that truck hit her? I don't know, because I was thinking about this earlier on in the episode. Mrs. Mulberry is not her umbrella, but the umbrella is not Mrs. Mulberry, because Mrs. Mulberry was in the car with Lynette when Parker was like, you forgot her umbrella. He didn't say, you forgot her. He said, you forgot her umbrella. So the umbrella itself is just an item of Mrs. Mulberry. So surely running over the umbrella does not kill Mrs. Mulberry. You just get Mrs. Mulberry a new umbrella. Exactly. Why did he think that Mrs. Mulberry got hit? Why did he not just think, oh no, she's fine. It was just the brolly. I don't get it. I don't know either. I don't know either. But I liked Tom's acting, especially in the house when he looks at Lynette like, oh my God, what have you done to Mrs. Mulberry? Even Lynette was like, no, she's dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. classic, classic. Oh, she's gone. Like... Just, I'm all for how shady that was of Lynette to get rid of her son's imaginary friend. Yeah, which is so strange, but desperate. Mm. She's desperate, right? She is desperate. Have you had an imaginary friend? Oh, um, well, apparently. Oh, okay. According to Kyle and Jasmine and Mum, I don't remember it, but apparently I used to talk to a little girl in the house and in the garden. You sure it wasn't just a ghost? I don't know. I mean, your place is apparently haunted. <laughs> That's a theory. But yeah, apparently I did have an imaginary friend who was a little girl, even though I don't remember ever having imaginary friends. So... Well, no, I imagine that kids don't imagine they remember they have imaginary friends, they just have friends. <laughs> I'd have to ask my family mm. and maybe get back to you on it. Okay. But yeah, apparently apparently I spoke. I was speaking to a little girl. Yeah. Okay. Who wasn't there. <laughs> well... What about you? No, not that I recall. No. I don't recall ever having an imaginary friend. I was just popular. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I really wasn't popular. You didn't need them. You're so stable. <laughs> so George shows up at Andrew's swimming thing to give Bria a goodbye gift, completely distracting Andrew right as he's about to dive in. She loves the gift and gives him a hug until George starts trying to kiss Bree. This infuriates Andrew, who gets out of the pool and lunges at George, punching him until his coach pulls him off while George secretly smiles at Andrew. I wouldn't really say it's so much of a secret because there's like tons of people gathered around both Andrew and George. Oh yeah, but he does but it he does it when no one's watching. Andrew is the only one that notices it, even though Andrew is not the only one looking in that direction we can see. Yeah. So but... he purposely provokes Andrew he does. into causing a scene. 
And even Breeze, like, Andrew, how could you? Oh my god, George, you're bleeding. But at the same time, George, like, practically pounced on Bree to the point where Bree was trying to push him off, saying, George, get off. Yeah, I mean, Bree, is it not obvious why? <laughs> yeah, is it not obvious what George was doing and why Andrew was behaving that way? And if anything, you should kind of be thanking Andrew for reacting that way to someone who touching your mother unwarrantedly. Yeah, I mean, Bree, when is no gonna mean no? Yeah. You said no earlier to the kissing when he was trying to kiss you, and now he's just gone in on you, and you just, why, what are you defending him for? Yeah, I don't know, I don't get it. I feel like Andrew should be given a lot more credit in this scene. Yeah, you go, Andrew. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> the episode ends with Mary Alice narrating about good fathers and how we recognise them. She says that they are the ones who are missed so terribly when everything falls apart in their absence, and we have a shot of Andrew packing a suitcase in front of Bree. So we can assume that... He's gone back to Camp Hennessy. Yeah, we can assume he's being sent to some sort of counselling camp again. She then says that they are the ones who love us long before we've even arrived, and we're shown a shot of Carlos putting his hand over Gabby's pregnant belly. She then says that they are the ones who come looking for us when we can't find our way home, and we see a shot of Mike walking around with Bongo, and coming across one of Zach's missing persons posters on the ground. We then see a shot of Lynette sobbing in bed, and Tom asks her what's wrong, and she says that she got her son's imaginary friend run over by a garbage truck, and that she's the worst person in the world. Brilliant sentence to read. Yeah, I bet. Tom comforts Lynette, saying that Parker will move on from this, and Mary Alice ends the episode, saying that the best dads are the ones that make women in their lives feel like good mothers. Which was really sweet, but I mean, like, screw the, screw the gay dads, right? Right? <laughs> but still, a really sweet note to end on with Tom and Lynette. It was a sweet note to end on, but this ending, I can't, I can't really appreciate anything else because I feel so awful for Andrew. Yeah, yeah, like, I, I do too. His dad dies, his mum immediately starts dating the Newtown nerd, and then he gets shipped off to behavioural camp again, all in the space of like one month. Yeah, it's not cool. It's really not cool. I just I feel really awful for him. I mean, can we really blame Andrew for the route that he goes down when he's at such an impress impressionable age. coming of age part of his life and everything is just so crap around him? Everything's awful around him. You know, the one parent that he had that actually accepted him for who he was died, got murdered, pretty much, let's face it, George killed him. And now the, the mum is dating the murderer of the dad. Not that anybody knows that yet, but we do. And we also know that Andrew knows that he's playing some sort of game mm. that no one else is seeing. Yeah, nobody else is seeing. So we're now going to move on to our next segment in which Joel's going to tell us the best and the worst fashion of the episode. So Joel, can you please tell us what the best fashion was in this episode or the best outfit? So the best outfit I was going to give to Gabby, but I've given a lot to Gabby recently. <laughs> so I'm giving it to Edie for looking like Jessica Simpson and still managing to rock that like broken leg boot that she had going. So bravo to Edie for that fantastic outfit. Yes. Because you looked incredible and very summery. I loved it. She came through. She did come through. Moving on, what would you pick for the worst outfit of the episode? The worst outfit I am giving to Brie. <laughs> At the dinner scene, when she's wearing that like really dark brown, oh, no, I think it was dark grey maybe, um, like grandma shirt, and then the like long black pencil skirt. Don't get me wrong, I love a pencil skirt. We all have a pencil skirt. They're chic, they're slimming, they're, oh, good catch. They're business-like. Um, and we love we love a business queen, but that was not a dinner party outfit, Brie. Was it not a moment? It was not a moment. It was not a moment. It wasn't even a mo. Mm. So what do we say to that worst outfit, Brie? Oh, Jesus. Gross. Thank you, Thorgy. We say, oh, Jesus, gross. Well earned. So moving on, who is your pick for best parent? Oh, yes. So my segment. <laughs> okay, so my pick for... Best parent of the episode... 
goes to Susan. Oh. For keeping Julie away from Zach at all costs. Yeah, okay, I'll give you that. I mean, title is best parent, not like best person. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest, every single best parent award is real slim pickings, like all the time. At the moment, yeah, we're not really getting much parenting, are we? It's hard work. Because I I have to look at a show full of all these desperate queens and be like, which one of these terrible people is (laughs) is a terrible parent? Has been the best one. But yeah, so it has to go to Susan because, well, it was the only one. Okay. (laughs) Although, then again, I could give it to Mike. I mean, he's trying really hard to find his son, putting up all these posters. And he is. He's going into all these, all this effort, and he doesn't really know Zach. So I could, I should really give it to Mike. Oh, is this a last minute change? Is this a Steve Harvey moment? Have you read the wrong name? I'm sorry, but it's going to Mike, Susan. I'm gonna have to take it back off you. <gasps> it's going to Adele Dazeem. <laughs> sorry, Susan. Mike, this goes to you. <laughs> Best parent of the episode. Congratulations, Mike, on your very first best parent of the episode award. Yeah. <laughs> Probably the best parent of, well, so far. So anyway. far, yeah. Yeah. So, how about your next award? Oh, yeah. My pick four. Worst parent of the episode. Okay, so this one's a bit different because in my notes, I've written that the worst parent is Lynette for killing Mrs. Mulberry. However, <laughs> upon rethinking, and going through this episode of Tales from Mysteria Lane, I have changed my mind. Oh, who are you giving it to? I'm giving it to Brie. <gasps> I knew it. I absolutely knew it. Because, I mean, I gave it to Lynette at first because it was the obvious choice. But then I thought, actually, no, Brie has completely disregarded Andrew's feelings, uh, presumably. And she's sending him to a behavioural camp again for everything that's happened. And part of me thinks, can't you just handle your problems properly? And also, I think we've seen her own talk to Danielle once in the past four episodes. Yeah. Okay, I get that he was out of control, and you said that you wouldn't send him to one of those places unless he does something out of line or out of control. But I wouldn't say this counts given the circumstances. No. He proper lunged at you, Brie, as in George lunged Mm -hmm. at you. And I feel like maybe if you just listen to him and let him explain and trust him a bit. Yeah. But there you go. Yeah, no, I agree. Is this the first time that... The same person has got both bursts in one episode. I don't know. I, surely it's not. Surely it's not. So I'm. So- <laughs> Brie has gotten the worst outfit and the worst parent in the same episode. It's, yeah. a, it's a big night for you, Brie. It is a very big night. Congratulations, Brie. Woo, Woo! fan favourite. <laughs> Yay, fan favourite. So that was season two, episode four. My heart belongs to daddy. Next week, we'll be doing episode five. They ask me why I believe in you. So, Joel, if pe- where, where can people find us on social media? So, if you are interested in following us on our social media, you can find us on Instagram at Boyfriends Review, and you can find us on Twitter at BFS Review. You can also email us. Our email address is boyfriendsreview at outlook.com, and our artwork is done by our friend Louis. You can also find a link to his Instagram page, Design, which is on all of our socials, and he does do commissions. Because he is absolutely incredible! Yeah. So, yeah, join us next week for episode five, and we'll be back in your ears, and have a a great new year be different from what <laughs> just be different do you be different make 2021 the year that 2020 should have been yeah enjoy the new year and have great celebrations well i hope that you had great celebrations because yes. this will be afterwards but it's fresh it's fresh in the new year when this comes out so enjoy have a, have a great one bye guys thank you bye, bye.